Randy, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Joe. Yes. Um, I think they uh, saw you not too long ago over in Boston at the uh, Chief Data Officer and Chief AI Officer Summit. So it's pretty cool. Um, and it's I, I got to admit, this is a uh, it, it's a bit newer of a world to me. This is a world you've been operating in for a long, long time as working with executives um, in the world of data. How did you get into this? Well, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, actually, forty years. But I, okay. I started in industry. Um, you know, as things would happen, I, I, I actually studied English and history and the liberal arts, art history, all that kind of stuff. But when it was time to get a job, uh, the jobs were basically in technology, that, and it was the early days. And I went to go into banking. So I went to work for Bank of America, which was a, a Bank of Boston, which is a predecessor bank to Bank of America. And they trained me as a COBOL and assembler programmer. Mm. But I wasn't so much interested in the um, programming. I was interested in the stuff that you move around, which was the data. And at that time, um, you know, I had gone to somebody who was one of the managers and I said, what do you what do you do with all this data? You have all this information on your customers, the behaviors, all of their activities. And they said, oh, the regulators make us hold on to it for seven years and then we can destroy it. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, that doesn't seem like the right thinking. So really, from that point forward, I became an advocate for how organizations could use data to uh, gain insights into their customers, to improve customer service and customer treatment and gain insights into their business. I spent a uh, decade with a company that was a pioneer in database marketing company called Hard Hanks, and I uh, ran their North American financial services practice and also their business to business practice and worked in that context with organizations like Federal Express and Microsoft. And when worked with Microsoft, when I was called out there and walked into the room, the person I was sitting at the end of the other end of the table was Steve Ballmer. And he said, this is too important to delegate to anyone. So he wow. became the point person for the um, data initiative for, for Microsoft. This was in 1996, 1997. Um, and then in the Internet era, I did uh, two venture back startups in Silicon Valley as a, as a co-founder, part of the founding team. And when everything came crashing down in that sector in 2001, I started a company called New Vantage Partners who were advisors to uh, Fortune 1000 companies on data strategy, data leadership, uh, worked with organizations such as American Express, Wells Fargo, uh, MetLife, The Hartford, Charles Schwab, MasterCard, uh, about 80% in financial services and 20% in healthcare and life sciences and ran that company for 20 years until uh, 2021 and then sold it to a, a Paris-based global consultancy, Wavestone, where I've served as innovation fellow for the past two years and then I retired uh, this month. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. But you're still doing podcasts, so. <laughs> yeah, and, and the other thing I mentioned is I do a lot of writing and speaking. So as yeah. data escalated in prominence, particularly in the early 2010s with the use of the term big data, I was invited by the Wall Street Journal to write a monthly column. So I did that for two years, 2014, 2015. Have continued that in Forbes and also write regularly for Harvard Business Review, about three columns a year. and. MIT Slow Management Review, same thing. Wow. Okay. And, and you wrote a book. Yeah. Fast, learn faster, lessons in data-driven leadership in an age of disruption, big data, and AI. And I did that in COVID. You know, I, I really preferred writing articles, but, you know, I had the time and couldn't travel anywhere, so I put it all into a book. It happens. I know how it goes. <laughs> so. yeah. Walk me through this though. I didn't. I didn't understand. I guess the scope or the um, the longevity of how long you've been working in data, um, particularly with with a, a bend towards, I guess, strategy and um, and quote getting value out of it, which we can probably unpack what what that means to you. But I'm I'm curious. You know, you've you've been around the block. You've seen a lot of trends. What's what are some of the have you seen inflection points in the industry? And if so, what, what, were, what were some of the inflection points that stand out? Yeah, uh, quite a few. Uh, but, I, but I would say 
to the first part of your question, I'm a huge believer in business value. In other words, one of the things I say to organizations these days, I mean, the first time I said that, I thought people would be really offended. Why why is that? Well, I've sharpened the message. What I said is, if you're not getting value, business value, measurable business value from your data and analytics investments, you should shut them down completely right now. Okay? You should say, wow, that sounds kind of extreme and urgent. But, you know, if you can't measure the return on the dollars that you're putting in, why would you continue to do it? So that's a point I make to a lot of organizations. And I really encourage this notion of um, that data and AI investments be very closely tied to the business with strong business sponsorship, very focused on ask, answering key business questions that are tied to business goals and outcomes for the organization. So that's kind of my uh, inherent bias in all of that. Um, in terms of inflection points, well, you know, have lived through a few. Um, yeah. You know, uh, uh, 25 years ago, what was the emergence of digital and, and the beginning of the digital transformation? And I guess the point I'd make about that is now with generative AI, this is probably the biggest inflection that I've personally seen uh, since that time. So in the past 25 years. But the thing that I tell people is that, you know, if you were a digitally native company, the, the Googles, the Apples, um, Facebook, et cetera, you're in a different position than uh, traditional legacy companies. So if you look at the Fortune 1000 today, roughly 10% are the digitally native, native companies that have emerged over the past 25 years. Many of them have the highest market capitalization. But the other 90% of legacy companies that have existed for as far back as, um, you know, into the mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. And if you're a part of that 90%, you know, you can't really and you shouldn't be thinking about trying to compete with the Googles and Facebook, etc. You know, you should really be competing with the other 90%. So as a consequence, the digitally native companies, uh, their adoption of um digital capabilities was from the outset. So it was years and years ahead. And for the rest of the legacy companies, it's been a gradual progression over time to the degree that one uh, Fortune 1000 chief digital officer and chief data officer said to me about two and a half, three years ago that they did more in terms of the implementation of their digital strategy during COVID than they had in the previous 20 years. And that was really out of necessity because they had to really learn to live and die by interacting with their customers on mm. a basis. Um, you know, other inflection points, you know, people make fun of this now, but, you know, when big data came into usage, it really elevated the discussion in the C-suites and at the board level because before that, often uh, data people and data issues were relegated to the back office or to the bowels of an organization, but it really became something where organizations said, you know, we need to establish a data strategy. As a matter of fact, after the financial services crisis and in 2007, 2008, and going into the big data era, it really precipitated the launch of the chief data officer role. Uh, right. I mentioned that have been running a survey for the past 12 years of Fortune 1000 companies, their top C executives, uh, roughly uh, 90% of the respondents of chief data or chief data and analytics officers. But in 2012, we asked these companies, how many of you appoint, have you, uh, how many of you have appointed a chief data officer? And only 12% said yes. This year it was 83.2% really? said yes. So it's really been, uh, it's gone from uh, a very nascent role to a role that's become uh, commonplace and widely adopted. And even looking back five years at 2017, it was at 55.9% that they had. So it really took, you know, about five years or so or longer to get any type of foothold in the past five years. It's taken off pretty dramatically. That's really fascinating. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think the chief data officer roles has grown um so quickly in yeah. the last few years, especially because that's, that's, that's a pretty big bump, what 30% or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. Say two things. Um, yeah. I mean, it's almost been a hundred percent increase in many respects or, or sure. 80%. Um, 
Well, the demand for expertise in leadership and data and analytics will only increase. Okay, it's not something that's going to go away. Uh, so that demand for data, analytics, and AI leadership, it's not going to go away anytime soon. And when I say soon, I'm talking you know many years and decades. But the other side of that is we ask every year whether the role is uh, successful and well established. You know, over the in 2020, only a quarter of organizations, 27.9, said the role was really successful. Last mm-hmm. year. You know, four years later, it was uh, 35% said it was successful. This year was the biggest leap. And I'll talk a little bit about that because everything seems due to uh, the embrace of generative AI. But this year, it leapt to 51%. But still, you know, that says that 50% of organizations are still struggling uh, to make the role successful and still struggling with the uh, tenure of data leaders. And we also asked whether the role was well understood within uh, companies and over half said the role was poorly understood. So it's a new role. It's a nascent yeah. role. It's a need, but, um, you know, it's still a work in progress. It reminds me a lot of this Wall Street Journal article I read a, a month or two ago where it was about chief marketing officers. And, and very similar to what you described, where the CEOs felt like they understood what a chief marketing officer should do. Um, I think vast majority of them, I don't remember the stat, but I think it was 22% of chief marketing officers felt the CEO understood what they were yeah. supposed to be doing. Um, is, is, is a similar disparity in expectations or understanding exists in um, the chief data officer role as well, do you think? Well, you know, uh, there's challenges with any new role. I mean, the uh-huh. CIO role only came into play about a generation ago. And I remember mm-hmm. the time the joke was that CIO stood for career is over. You know, the tenures were stayed short. <laughs> you know, if you have the benefit of uh, having seen that, you know, the, what's happening with the chief data officer is kind of like, yeah, you know, that's what happens. The roles new. Organizations don't have a clear expectation or understanding yeah. of what the mandate should be. There's no uh, reporting structures that are universally in place. I mean, I've seen chief data officers that report from everything from the chief marketing officer to the CEO, to the CFO, to the chief risk officer, to the CIO and CTO. So depending upon the company, depending upon how they envision the role, it's there's a, there's a wide disparity. Mm-hmm. And backing up real quick, you used the word successful when you're describing these results. What, what does successful mean? Well, you know, a lot of that is in the eyes of the beholder and yeah. the questions that I ask in the survey are subject to interpretation. But, um, you know, it's asked as a pretty straight question. You know, do you consider it the role to be successful and well-established or not? Right. Each person may come to their con- their own conclusions. I mean, one of the things that we ask in the survey each year is the progress of data and analytics initiatives. Mm. And used to ask something where people could kind of hedge their bets and say like, oh, you know, we're doing pretty good or things of that kind. But I turned it into a binary yes, no question. So I said, are you driving business innovation with data? Yes or no. You know, this year, last year it was like 59% said yes. This year it leaped to 77%. (laughs) said, are you competing on data and analytics? You know, last year it was 40%. This year, again, with that generative AI boost, it went up to 50%. We said, are you managing data as a business asset? Last year, it was 39%. This year, it jumped to 49%, uh, two, other, two more. Have you created a data-driven organization? Last year, it was only 23%. Uh, this year, it practically doubled, more than doubled, to 48%. And we asked, have you established a data and analytics culture? And this had been notoriously poor uh, over the years. Last year, it was only 20%. But this year... Again, everything skyrocketed, and this year it was uh, 42%. So we try to force people to give an answer that's uh, binary as opposed to saying, well, kind of, maybe, sort of. Yeah, but if I'm, if I'm looking at the results then, it seems like almost 100% growth increases over across the board in some of these like 20 to 40. What, 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 would it, what do you think it's accounting for all this? Yeah, you know, uh, Tom Davenport and I co-authored the foreword, and we said, as a matter of fact, the title of our um, article that appeared in MIT Sloan Review this week, and I'm going to cheat here a minute because I'm going to look it up because oh, I don't <laughs> exactly right, was a survey. Generative AI is making companies more data-oriented, okay? So the, the point there is that, 
you know, over the course of the year, particularly in the beginning of the year after ChatGPT was released late last year, a lot of CEOs and boards turned to the chief data officers, the data leaders in the company and said, you know, what's our uh, AI strategy? How are we going to respond to this? So it really elevated the whole discussion, which then drove down into, well, you know, the quality of our AI depends upon the quality of our data. Well, what are we doing about our data? You know, how um, are we leveraging? How are we ensuring greater quality? greater data quality, um, you know, what are the things that we're doing to create a data-driven organization? So all of those questions that for a number of years, uh, CDOs were saying, hey, you know, um, we have all this data and we could help. Now all of a sudden it was being driven from the top top of the organization. They were saying, you know, what are your data capabilities and what do we need to do to elevate this and what do we need to do to invest in this and how do we tie it to business outcomes? So, you know, like a rising tide, uh, what's it, the, a rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. That's really interesting. So when's the last time you've seen such top-down support for these types of initiatives? And by these types, I mean either technology, uh, data initiatives, or related. Uh, 25 years ago with the uh, arrival of the internet, unequivocally. I mean, people have said to me, like, um, Oh, you know, is this equivalent to the uh, introduction of the printing press? Is this equivalent to the introduction of the locomotive, the railroad? I say, well, I can't really comment on the former two. Yeah, <laughs> my lifetime or my professional career, it's uh, exactly like uh, the arrival of the internet. Let me rewind a bit then. So back then, what were the driving factors behind wanting to jump onto the internet? Well, you know, I was talking to somebody this morning and I was just saying that, um, you know, back in the day, <laughs> you know, you went into the typewriter, you went into the word processor and you created a document that said, you know, here are my ideas. You went around the organization and you put it on people's desk or you put it in the mail and you put a stamp on it and you sent it across the country and so forth. And that was the uh, speed with which business operated. So uh, it completely transformed everything in terms of making uh, feedback possible in in real time. Mm -hmm. I mean, we take it for granted today, but it's uh, looking back, it's... um, I, I can't imagine how got anything done. It is hard to imagine. Um, and I remember the conversations back then too. Uh, I was I was lucky or unlucky enough to have an internet uh, account back in, or connection back in 1992, I think it was. It was a wow. teenager who was on the, you know, I, was beta, I used to beta test uh, the Mosaic browser back when still a kid. Um, but I remember there there, were, there was talk back then that the, the internet was a fad. Like this is going to go away. Like, you know, it doesn't really offer anything new. And, um, you know, and obviously here we are today chatting over the internet to do a, a podcast, which is also internet related, you know, so, so it's, it's interesting, I think, cause, cause I see some of the same arguments around generative AI right now, like, oh, this is stupid. It's a fad, but I've, um, I've personally learned to, to not dismiss anything out of hand. Like it, it's, you know, um, but what, what was it about generative AI though, that, that you think, caught people's attention because it's not like machine learning or AI is new. I mean, we've been doing a lot of machine learning for a long time and deep learning, which underpins um, generative AI. I mean, that's been around for, gosh, a decade now. Uh, What do you think it was about generative AI that caught people's attention all of a sudden? Well, I'd make two comments. You know, back to the internet, um, I I remember what it's called, the information superhighway. Oh, yeah. And then... um, you know, there was all this excitement and euphoria about the arrival of the internet. And then people said, well, you know, it hasn't really like changed everything. So, you know, maybe it's just kind of a fad, as you say. But it was the gradual adoption over time that it became prevalent in more and more aspects of one's life and one's work. So yeah. in the early pioneering applications, etc. But in terms of its broadest um application, you know, that played out over years and decades. Mm-hmm. So I think it's uh, similar in many respects to, to um, AI. Now, of course, what you said is, I mean, AI has been around 
for as long as my entire career. I, I remember in my uh, second job was working with NLP, natural language processing, was asking like very basic questions and it gave the answers. And even a few years ago, I had a colleague who uh, got his PhD from Yale on artificial intelligence like 30 years ago. And you know now all this machine learning thing stuff was coming along and various AI applications. And I said to him, I said, Bill, hey, your time has come. You know, now where um, you know AI is is finally becoming uh, relevant and uh, in the mainstream. And he said, No, no. He says this is just a fad. He said AI is never going to happen. You know, and this was just a few years ago. And this was somebody that had their PhD in it. Well, you know, I think the yeah. thing that happened was that. Um, Computing power accelerated the ability to capture data, hence big data. So there was much larger and larger data sets available, available with speed in a timely fashion. I remember when working with American Express, they used to work off a data sample to improve, to basically approve uh, credit lines or credit transactions. Today, it looks at, you know, billions, if not trillions of volumes of data in a matter of seconds and not only for you, but for everybody that's on a particular transaction to see if there's an outlier. So I think it's the prevalence of data that's now finally made so that AI can generate results that have, um, you know, a high degree of probability. Oh, yeah. Which the Internet enabled, right? I mean, I think I, think, I distinctly remember, too, going from uh, modems to uh, uh, broadband <laughs> and that changed everything. You know, yeah. it's, it's sort of the same epoch you see right now with um higher power GPUs and better hardware. I mean, that's almost the equivalent of broadband in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. That happened back then. Because you, could, you couldn't achieve these sorts of um, large-scale parameter trainings without more hardware that we have now. It just wouldn't really work that way. So but much the same way, you would never have gotten to this point if you were still on copper cable mo or uh, copper wire modems because the data amounts would never have grown. Because, you know, so it's, it's funny just kind of how everything sort of... Uh, it goes full circle in itself where the internet sort of gave rise to more data, which then gave rise to more, um, what we have today. So, yeah. And to, and to your our question, our question, um, amidst the questions was that, um, yep. you know, over the course of this year, people have said, Oh, you know, what do you think of generative AI? And I've been very cautious in responding. I'd said, you know, well, there's, uh, there's positive opportunities in terms of greater productivity, upscaling of jobs, things of that kind, but there's also risks associated things associated with things like misinformation and disinformation and, and job loss and ethical bias and, and those type of things. But I had the opportunity in October to go to the Wall Street Journal Tech Live event in Laguna Beach. And nice. you know, it was funny because Sam Altman was the keynote speaker. We mm. inspired. Two weeks later, he was rehired. Nod yeah. <laughs> Kosla was there. And uh, what's oh, nice. Faithy Lee, the, who runs the Stanford program. And I came away with an entirely different mindset than I had going into it. And that mindset was what I call inevitability. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you like it, don't like it, fear it, have concerns about it, it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So you need to uh, get used to it, plan for it, get with the program, um, really as simple as that. Yeah. And for, I guess from a practical sense for the companies um, that you talk to, right, we're talking fortune companies, what are some of the practical things they can be doing to either prepare for AI or implement it in their companies? Well, I read a lot of case study stories in this context, and uh, I, I write those in Forbes. And the one that I like the best of the recent ones is something that I wrote in December about Ally Financial, because what Ally Financial did, and they're a um, exclusively online bank, so they're innovative by nature, uh, kind of in that Capital One uh, category as opposed to more traditional banks. But they set up uh, an environment, their own internal environment, to uh, apply a series of use cases. And then they were going to actually test and measure the productivity. So the article I, I wrote uh, was about the quantifiable productivity gains that they'd gotten through an initial set of use cases. And what I liked about that was that they went very public about it. They felt it was like their responsibility. They quantified the results they were achieving each time they 
improved and tweaked their, their models and their uh, business use case. And that was different because previous articles that I've written, it was more about people said, well, you know, we're putting in place the infrastructure, we're establishing the safeguards, we've established uh, various committees within the organization. But it was more, it was very much at a process level and they weren't really, uh, they hadn't really got into the stage of testing and uh, getting quantifiable results. So it was really gratifying to see the Ally Financial case study. So I think that, you know, um, what we're seeing now is more and more organizations are reaching that stage where they're putting in place the appropriate safeguards, but they're establishing use cases and they're testing them and coming up with a quantifiable results and then figuring how they can tweak that and what opportunities there are to uh, move some of those capabilities into production. And, and what are some of those capabilities right now? Because, I mean, generative AI, for example, if we're just talking about that, that, that could mean a lot of things to a lot of people like ChatGPT being integrated or GitHub Copilot or uh, creating images or video or whatnot. But what, what, are, what are some of the um, things that you're seeing businesses do from a, um, uh, a capability standpoint um, with generative AI? Yeah, in the case of Ally Financial, and uh, you know, I can describe it at a few hundred yeah. feet up above. Yeah, and that was was uh, there's a lot of customer service activities, and this mm -hmm. applies across companies across industry. And they're saying, to what degree can the um, a machine do that more effectively than, than a human being? So they were testing that and and validating it. You know, I went to. Uh, an event, you know, in Boston or in Cambridge at uh, Harvard in October, and they had one of the heads of Harvard Medical School there. And he said something that I thought was fascinating. And my wife spent her career in healthcare, so as when I when I'm hearing this, I'm texting it to her and I'm saying, "Is this true?" And so the first thing they said was that we have done a series of tests, and what we found is that a machine will diagnose a patient illness uh, better than a human being 90% of the time, okay? And this is from the head of Harvard Medical School. So I text this to my wife. I said, is this true? And she's like, probably. Oh boy. <laughs> the next thing that they said, which was really astonishing, they said that um, when, they, when they did their additional tests, they found that a machine was shown to be uh, more empathetic than the actual doctor, say in the written reports, or if it was uh, turned into audio, the patients viewed it as much more empathetic than the actual physician, 80% of the time. And I said to her, is this true? And she says, I'm sure. And then a few weeks later, I hosted a CDO panel and I had the chief data officer from Mayo Clinic. And so I decided I'd put him on the spot. And I said, you know, I was just over this thing at Harvard. And they said, you know, 90 percent uh, machine did 90 percent better in uh, diagnostics and 80 percent better in patient compassion. He said, absolutely. You know, we did the exact same test and we come at the exact same thing. So, you know, there's some real measurable metrics that organizations are coming up with. And Ally Financial, you know, the activities that they undertook in terms of improving productivity around customer service, it was in that 86, 87 wow. range that the machine was able to fully handle everything and do a better job than the human. Wow. Well, they follow the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I do sometimes like the customer service agents who don't and sort of maybe give you a bit of a break. Um, so. <laughs> in fact, that's one of the things I do now is I try and get a, a person on the phone because I find like the uh, the chat interface that there's so many guardrails around it. I'm just like, hey, I just want to get a deal. You know? Um, yeah. So. You know, back in the day, this is about yeah, 15, 20 years ago, I was working with a client, a large uh, financial service, mutual fund, et cetera, company. I can't remember the, what the rationale was, but when you call customer service, they, they viewed it as there was a correlation between the time you spent on the phone and the uh, deepening of the relationship with the organization. So for the first three or four minutes, they'd say, so how is the weather where you are? Did you happen to see the Patriots play this weekend or whatever the football? <laughs> so, so they established uh, three or four minutes establishing report. And then they said, so what is the question that you've called to uh, get help with? Interesting. 
Yeah, that's what Zappos was really uh, famous for too. Is their call center where I guess they would just order you a pizza if you wanted them to and huh. all kinds of stuff. So um, yeah, something to be said for that. It kind of makes me wonder if that's and and sort of if everyone's going to be using generative AI, um, it's sort of a, maybe a front front line for their business. If if there wouldn't be a competitive advantage to having the human touch at, at uh, maybe some other uh, points in, of contact with the business, I don't know. Well, you that's know. What all of these organizations have said to me, um, Ally Financial emphasized that every place has emphasized that, you know, when we were at the um, Northeastern University Institute for Experiment, Experiential AI, virtually yeah. everybody said uh, they emphasized the, emphasized the importance of the human in the loop. They also yeah. human in the loop. In other words, as a corrective as a mediator or a moderating influence or to keep things honest or to track what's happening and any deviations. Yep. So, um, yeah, and, and that's in many respects, I guess, creating a, a, an important new role. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when you talk to executives at these at these big companies, what's is, is there any notion of what's going to happen to the people impacted by generative AI or or non-generative AI too, I should throw that in. Well, you know, there's certain folks I talk to and they say, oh my God, AI is awful. It's going to eradicate all the, the jobs of mankind and it's just going to be computers doing everything. But in industry, I hear the exact opposite and that mm -hmm. is actually going to liberate people from doing the road and mundane tasks and the right. computers can be like the underlings. And the human beings can be the people that bring critical judgment and analyze the results and do the critical and creative thinking. So, um, I mean, I think it's inevitable that, uh, you know, more mundane tasks that can be done by a computer will be replaced. But, um, you know, there's the opportunity to elevate people in terms of the roles that they play. You can, you can be CEO of the machine. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I, I, and I try and tell this to, to people who work. I mean, my, my background's more, um, let's say, a, a data engineering practitioner and so forth, right? And so, but it's interesting. So when I talk to practitioners, they're like, oh, is my job going to be outsourced? You're talking to maybe an analyst or a data engineer or a data scientist. And at least for the data scientists and um, data analysts, I tell them, look, I mean, if you're spending a lot of your time doing descriptive statistics for your job, like answering like where, like what or when type questions like that, can and probably should be automated because that's that's not that interesting. <laughs> those questions aren't that interesting, right? I mean, so either you start automating actions that you take on those um, events that are occurring, um, and I think the the rise of, of more streaming data and the commoditization of that's probably going to influence um, you know more rapid actions taken. But but I said you know this is really puts you in a position where you could be answering more interesting questions like you know um, how or, or why, which I think you'd probably want to answer versus just what happened on this date. Like that's a pretty boring question to be frank so yeah i was um doing a fireside chat interviewing someone uh, about two years ago it, it was an interesting thing this person had had a very um far-reaching and eclectic career that started their career as a uh, tour manager for bob dylan and then the oh. uh, manager for bob dylan and the band and a roommate of George Harrison of the Beatles and uh, okay. produced Martin Scorsese's first film, Mean Streets, then produced The Last Waltz, and then moved into various type of uh, video on demand, and then wound up at the USC Annenberg School um, focusing on technology, and that's how I got to meet this awesome. individual. So I was interviewing him over the range of his career, and at the end it was a Q&A, and somebody said, and, and he, he's kind of a... Um, you know, just a very blunt guy. And somebody said, so, you know, going into this age of data and AI, should we all uh, major in data science in college? And he goes, only if you want to be replaced by an algorithm. <laughs> you know, he says, you know, study like creative things and uh, develop your critical thinking skills. So, you know, I don't think it's as black and white as that, but it's... Uh, I thought it was an interesting story. Well, it's an interesting twist too, because I think for the longest time we've been telling people, oh, you need to go study uh, STEM, mm -hmm. right? And learn how to code uh, and all this stuff. I mean, I, I think, you know, I gave a lot of talks last uh, last year. My favorite talk still was going to my uh, kids at that time. He is a, a sixth grade class and talking about AI for an hour. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. 
uh, easily my favorite talk. And why is that? Because, uh, you know, these, these kids are going to be impacted somehow. I mean, and I think impacted in hopefully a great way where they're able to leverage a lot of these tools. But, you know, the first question I ask is, what do you think AI is? Like, oh, it's going to take over. And I was like, okay, so I have a chat GPT on my phone for the next hour. We're just going to, we're going to, I'm going to pass my phone around. Don't shoot nasty texts to my friends uh, while you're at it, but uh, just use it and let's, let's figure it out. Let's answer some questions, right? I think by the end, um, I think a lot of the mystique had gone away and I think kids had a better understanding of what sort of the boundaries of at least chat GPT were. And I th thought that was pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, we kind of talked about careers and stuff and I they said, very similar. I think at the end of the day, you got to kind of focus on, you know, the things you things you're always going to have with you is yourself, right? So find things that are going to make you happy. Um, I think that a lot of the career advice you've been getting in school is probably going to be bad advice, to be frank, because they're t they're telling you what to do about that's that's ten years old. Um, yeah, and you know, so. and it's back to that point about inevitability, um, because if you look at technology change in perspective, you know, railroads. Airplanes later on, they dramatically shrunk time and distance and so forth. And I was reading a book earlier this year, and it was fascinating because this is my favorite example. It said <laughs> it wasn't a technology, but in the way it was, it said that, um, you know, there were all these uh, indigenous tribes all across uh, America, North America. And some of them were just a few miles apart. But in the uh, 1600s onwards, when uh, the horse was brought from Europe, all of a sudden, you know, the indigenous people started getting on horseback and riding down the road and finding that was like a totally new tribe that they never even knew about. So it's not that different. I mean, the mm -hmm. scale is like exponentially different, but, you know, technologies have that type of transformative um, impact. And, you know, there's bad things that can happen, such as misinformation and disinformation, but there's all kinds of... Uh, wonderful things, particularly breakthroughs in science and technology and medicine that can happen if you just say, hey, you know, this is here, you have to deal with it. I, I mean, sometimes I make the analogy, and that's like a bad analogy, you know, you can use a, screw, uh, a screwdriver or a hammer to fix something, you know, you can also use a screwdriver or a hammer to assault somebody, okay? Yeah. So, you know, uh, you can use a, a car to get from... Uh, point A to point B, or you can get a car to, you know, run somebody over. So, so any type of technology, even the best technologies can, can be misused. So mm -hmm. you should really think about, um, you know, the positive ways that um, AI can be applied. Absolutely. And, and sort of, I think switching gears, but, but on a related note, you were a successful writer, uh, author. In what ways do you think AI is going to impact um, people like yourself? <laughs> Uh, that's funny because somebody uh, reached out to me at the beginning of last year and they said, hey, you know what, instead of writing, uh, you know, one article per month, you know, I can work with you and you can write like nine articles per month using GPT uh, because we're going to write about this topic in the style of Randy Bean because you have so much content out there that I can do it. And I thought about it for a second. I said, you know, I'd rather write uh one really poor article <laughs> and nine articles that I didn't really write. So, um, you know, I enjoy the creative process and, um, I mean, different people will approach it in different ways and some people will have uh, chat GPT, write everything that they ever write and so forth. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I enjoy the process of writing and the creativity and the synthesizing of ideas and finding the, words to express things, even though, you know, now when I'm typing an email or something, you know, I'm thinking like, what's the best word to use? And then it's like showing me and I'm like, yeah, yeah. best word. It is like that. I almost sometimes, I, I sometimes turn that off <laughs> Yeah. Um, because if I can, right, some of them are just forced to use it, but it's like, um, and I was super grateful for it. I think it just depends on the, what the type of writing you're doing. Right. So if I, I find when I'm writing a, articles or book drafts, I turn off um, sort of the autocomplete part because I, I, you know, especially as you know, I don't know what your style is writing. I'd love to talk to you about that. But I, the way I do it is I write what's called a zero draft, just do a brain dump. It doesn't matter if it's grammatically correct, okay. it's just getting the ideas out, right? Absolutely. And, um, yeah. And then refine it from there to first draft and then just edit ruthlessly from there. What, what's your writing process like? Oh, well, that's funny because um, somebody asked me that and, and you just played into it was that, um, you know, I, I, I used to have this story. Somebody said, oh, like, it must take you, like, 
hours, days, and weeks to like write these articles. I said, no, it takes one hour. <laughs> and I said, mm. I, mean, I, said I, I, I block one hour out of my schedule and I write the article. Now, that was kind of half true because what I did was I carried the idea around in my head for about a week, thinking about it when I was walking or bike riding or doing things like that. And then, you know, then it started to crystallize. And so the first thing that I do is, uh, you know, basically uh, get, get on word and I dump all the content. So it had nothing to do with this final style and so forth. I just get all the ideas out that I wanted to capture. And then comes the cut and paste part where you start moving the stuff around. So actually the end, you know, can be the beginning and then yep. ah, we'll move it back to the end. No, we'll move it back to the beginning and you move the stuff around. But uh, that, that's where I'd spend an hour. I'd say, you know, I'm only going to spend an hour, like, you know, I have the content down there, so I'm going to spend an hour trying to, like, tell the story in the best way possible, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to uh, obsess about it, okay? It's, like, the best I can do in an hour, and then I'm, I'm going to push send to send it off to the publisher. So the the, the finalization process was uh, would take an hour. That's what I'd allocate. But the gestation process would be... Um, you know, it would just depend. And, and one of the things that happens sometimes is if I'm thinking about an article, I'll wake up in the morning and the article will have written itself in my head overnight or just go and I get all the stuff down. That's really interesting. So you've written a lot of articles. How, how many articles do you think you've written? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I had to quantify that about a year ago. Um, it's over 250 or 300 uh, between four of this HBR, MIT. Wow. Uh, yeah. How do you know when you're done with an article? How do you know when it's ready to press? How do you know when you're ready to press send? Um, well, again, I try to make it a, uh, a closed-end process. Like, I'm not going to spend an infinite amount of time. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically, when it's when it's good enough, I, I think in my book, the opening, the opening, whatever you call it, uh, like the opening quote in the book is, uh, yes, in the preface, it's from Voltaire, the French writer, being like the literary literature major, and it says, "Perfect is the enemy of good." So, mm -hmm. so I'm a big believer in that. So. You know, it, it's not like I'm writing, uh, you know, War and Peace or The Great Gatsby. I'm writing a piece for Forbes or something. Yeah. Do they clean it up after with their editorial process or do they just say it's good for Randy, good for us, we'll, we'll publish it? Uh, so for Forbes, I have reached the state where I self-publish so they don't get to touch it. Oh. Um, for Harvard Business Review and MIT Stone Review, it's different. Um you know, they touch it and, you know, they, they do a, a, a good job on, on adding things. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but again, it's, it's, uh, for me, you know, enemy is the, I mean, perfection is the enemy of good. Yeah. I know what you mean. Like I, I, I every day I write, I try and write between a thousand and 2000 words. Um, it, for me, it's word count. Um, but I view it as just an exercise in thinking, right? So even That's if it never goes to print, it's just one of those things where you're, I, I, I still think even in the age of generative AI, there's no substitute for, like you say, going on walks, letting an idea gestate. I'm an obsessive user of legal pads and pens. Like I just jot everything and draw everything out um, and, and write, right? But that's, that's more to, I think, sharpen the thoughts versus maybe not, you know, publishing anything. Like you see all the instruments in my background too. I mean, I make a lot of music. None of it really ever sees the light of day, but it's just to sharpen your skills in that area. And I view um, writing as very much a similar activity. Uh, do, you, do you view writing as more of a, of work or, or of, of an art form for you or something well, in between? Or, or how, do you, how do you feel your writing? Well, you kind of said it yourself. You said it sharpens your thoughts. So, so yeah. what does is it forces you to sharpen your thinking. So uh, often from that process, your thinking becomes more refined. Um, so I view it as both a, um, you know, it's both a discipline, but it's a, it's a creative process as well. Uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, th these days, the things I write are pretty formulaic. I'm about to write a new story, and I spoke to the um, chief AI officer of a Fortune 1000 company this morning that's going to write that story about. And I said, so, so basically, you know, at this stage, it's formulaic. The first paragraph is kind of... Um, 
about your organization so people have a sense of your organization and something that you're going to be doing now that's going to change things. Um, and then I get into a little bit of the history of, you know, how you've operated over the years and why uh, forces in the marketplace or customers are dictating that you need to do something a little bit different. And then I talk about the person, the chief AI officer, or chief data officer, and how they came to this. And I conclude with something that, uh, you know, makes it exciting and puts it into perspective. And then just before that, in the middle, I try to put in a couple examples to make it tangible and real, but uh, not too far down in the weeds. So, you know, that's pretty much the process that I follow. Interesting. But then you also write um, you know, your, your uh, annual report uh, for Wavestone, and then you write a book. So in the annual reports that you tend to do uh, well, more often every year, or, or do you do more uh, type of industry reports than that? Or is that just the, the big one that you do? Uh, just, just one a year. Yeah. So what's, what's that process like of, of coming up with that, um, that report? It's, it seems like it's a lot of, um, a lot of information in there. Yeah. You know, it's funny because uh, basically I execute the survey over the course of the month. It's a highly curated survey. So what I mean by that is though it's anonymous in terms of the participants, uh, everybody's by invitation only. They're only mm-hmm. executives for the most part. And so I know who's responded in terms of the organization. So it lists the organizations that participate, but it doesn't say who within those organizations. So as opposed to surveys that are sent out to a thousand people and get like a, whatever number of responses, but it's unknown, you know, where, who they were and where they are. So, uh, you know, once the survey is closed after a month, because they have to spend a lot of time, you know, and it's relationship driven. So some people I have to send nine messages to, then I have to send a text, and, you know, maybe yeah. you call them and, and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we're apologetic, we'll do it right now. But then then I look at the data, the, the, what's the, the end results. And um, that's the amazing part, because the story pretty much tells itself, you know, this year there were five themes that came out of it, but the, the, the data pretty much, um, you know, painted this picture, you know, the first finding is leading companies continue investments in data and analytics with the expectation of delivering business value. Number two, companies see generative AI as potentially the most transformative technology in a generation. Three, companies believe the CDO, CDAO role is necessary, although turnover has been high and 10 years short. Mm. Or companies recognize that integrating data and AI into traditional business processes and changing organizational culture requires time and commitment. And then lastly, companies believe data and AI safeguards and governance are essential, but much more needs to be done. So the data pretty much tells the story and then you just need to put a little bit, uh, you know, the, the survey is the one thing where I let the data speak for itself. So sure. there's uh, just a little bit of, you know, I'll articulate those findings but then I'm just showing the data. What's been the response to your uh, your latest uh, report? It's actually been astonishing because I uh, posted it on LinkedIn on uh, you know January second, the day that it was published, and it was actually like a for, for the stuff that I post, it was like a record um, response, like as of. Uh, Today, there's uh, 37,000 impressions, uh, you know, 39 reposts. Uh, So, you know, that's, uh, I mean, the average article I do is, you know, maybe 5,000 impressions. Uh, Some of the HBR things I've done have gotten, you know, 20, 25,000 impressions. But to get 37, 38,000 impressions is pretty extraordinary. So, and a lot, I think a lot of that has to do with the AI, particularly with the AI component this year. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it floating around. I think some people I've seen it in, uh, in LinkedIn. You have those little slide decks that uh, yeah. put it in. So I was like, I don't know if Randy approved that or not, but it looks pretty cool. So I <laughs> took a glance at it, but it seems popular. Like people in my circle are even uh, pointing to it, which, you know, uh, like I said, our worlds typically don't necessarily intersect too much. Uh, but, you know, even, even people in my universe are like, yeah, this report's really good. Yeah. So. It, it's it's free PR. You, you know, you want it to get out there. It's, yeah. it's somebody once said to me. I thought it was like so funny. They said, um, "Do you get paid for the articles that you write?" And I said, "Like, wow." 
I said, what an interesting question. I said, from my perspective, it's getting millions of dollars of free publicity and free advertising. Exactly. Yeah. Same with podcasts. People ask me, oh, you know, do you get do you um, do people pay you to be on podcasts or do you pay people? I'm like, no, that's not the point of it. Like it, 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 the money, the money comes through other ways, right? Um, yeah. Think, especially for you, like, you, you know, your surveys, it's a lot of work, but it adds a ton of value to the conversation that people are having. Because otherwise, it's a lot of guesswork, right? And I would say, like, the stuff that you're doing is it's it's directly tied to, you know, real C-suite executives doing the work, right? And I think that's a, the advantage you have um, you know, versus just... The thing I like about what you're doing is you, you're actually out there getting the data and putting in the work versus just being like a pundit who's like, hey, AI is pretty cool. Go check it out. So, yeah, I mean, you know, when I ran the company for 20 years, the idea was, um, you know, I didn't like the idea of I, I, I always stayed away from the word sales. But what I said is if you create credibility through thought leadership, through uh, putting content into the market, from interviewing people, from telling their stories, you know, your, your, your phone will ring or you know, your phone will text or whatever. And people will say, hey, you know, this is something we're trying to figure out. Can you help us? So mm-hmm. from my perspective, it helped create demand and people came to you rather than you having to uh, knock on their doors. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a good spot to be in. So, but again, if you started charging for it, it would, you, you could instantly ruin it too. Yeah, exactly. That's always been my mindset that there's uh, I mean, even when I wrote the book, I wrote it as a uh, kind of an additional calling card, a branding thing. And, uh, you know, Tom Davenport, you know, my buddy there, he, he makes fun of me. He says, I'm the guy that goes to events and gives away his books, um, you know, signed copies, that type of thing. But it's all an investment in the brand. I didn't write it to, to, to make money. You know, that comes from other things. It does. It does. If you make money off your book, I think, you, you know, you're definitely fortunate, but it's, um, it's a side effect. Yeah. You know, so that's cool. Um, well, it's great been talking to you. Um, for I guess the final question is, what are, you, what are you excited about this year? We're recording this at the beginning of uh, 2024. What, what, are you, what are you stoked on? Well, you know, as mentioned, I um, retire from full-time work this month. So it's uh, really a reset in terms of uh, next chapter. And I'm going to continue to write and speak and do some uh, senior advisor and board work and things of that kind. But at the same time, I'm going to... Uh, Try not to take on too much, to be selective, to do only the things that uh, really excite me. And, you know, that will play out over time. But I'm going to try to, you know, I I told somebody this morning I was going to be deleting as much as possible. (laughs) So I'm going to try to, uh, you know, go back to bare bones a little bit and, um, you know, listen to things, but be be very selective and not overcommit. That's so cool. I'm happy for you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's awesome well thanks for thanks for uh thanks for being on the podcast too i guess all that said so um you know you got a lot of options uh including doing nothing at all so <laughs> but it's a great talking to you man yeah anytime man. thank you Just, uh...